this is Jamie Dyer welcoming you to another edition of The Quocast. And if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode of the podcast, then you can. You can email quocast at outlook.com. That's quocast at outlook.com. You can tweet at the quocast on Twitter, or you can go to the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the quocast. So I present to you here an interview that I did with Alan Lancaster in 2011 for a charity radio broadcast that I did for Macmillan Cancer Support. Now, it's important to note I was 21 years old. I'd been doing radio for about maybe two years by that point, but I'd only just started doing it from home. And I hadn't had much experience uh, over the phone. So imagine the first time that you do all these things, uh, you're talking to one of your heroes. I was so nervous. And it's funny that at the beginning of the recording uh, that I have, I say to him, oh, um, I am about to, I'll talk to you for about 10 minutes, right? This will take about 10 minutes. About 35 minutes later, we're still talking. Uh, so I was extremely inexperienced at this point in timings and, and goodness knows what. But I thought I would present this to you because this really is a moment in time, right? Uh, to put some context on it, Quo had just released Quid Pro Quo. Um, there had been some talk about Alan and Francis kind of talking and things like um, Hello Quo and the reunion tours were not quite there yet. You know, I think there'd been some buzz, but all of those things hadn't happened yet. So this is slap bang in the middle of that, the summer of 2011. So what I'm going to do is play you some highlights from that interview that uh, I, I conducted over Skype through telephone at three in the morning when I had a lot more time than I do now. And I will interject occasionally with some extra context. So without further ado, I present to you uh, this interview that I did with Alan Lancaster in 2011. Oh, and um, I should note that the sound quality isn't as good as it would be if I did it now. I've tried to clean it up as best I can, but everything is still audible. Let's go. I have uh, Mr. Alan Lancaster on the phone. Uh, hi, Alan. Hi, Jamie. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? All right. Nice and warm. <laughs> that's good, because you're in sunny Australia. Yeah, well, that's winter here. Oh, right. So does it get, like, sunny in the in the winter as well, then? It's like a... Winter's like a British summer, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I guess I guess so, but it's been quite warm here, but I suppose not yeah, as warm as it is. Yeah, it's been very, very nice this year, the weather, isn't it? It's fantastic. Yeah, so are, are you playing any in any kind of bands um, to this day? Uh, I'm not playing at the moment, I'm not gigging at the moment, although I've still got my, um, I've still got bands playing if I want to. You know, the Party Boys is one of my bands over here, but um, I've got my own band, which is Lanks the Bombers, if I want to do it, but I've not been... Uh, playing live for about a year or so, a couple of years. And, um, I'm thinking of doing it again soon. It's, it's, um, 
it's hard work playing live. <laughs> I can imagine, because obviously what with uh, Crow's big hefty uh, kind of tour schedule, you know, back in kind of the early and mid days, I should think you were very much on your feet a lot of the time. Yeah, and only Crow was never-ending. The touring with, with Crow was always... Was Crow's a live band. That's basically what Status Quo was all about. We were, you know, right from the very early days, it was always about playing live. That was our thing. We weren't really a recording band as such. That was sort of um, part of it, of course, but um, we were mainly the live a live act and always have been. And that's really where, where you earn your living. <laughs> yeah. Basically, I mean, sometimes you get fed up with it, but... Uh, you actually, your favourites are really the live stuff, which you perform live. I mean, obviously you've got a few studio songs that you like, but really what you play live is is sort of your favourites, really, because um, you're playing quite a lot every night, aren't you? And uh, if you didn't like it, I don't think you'd uh, put it into a set. Yeah. So really, um, subconsciously and directly, really, the, li- the, the live stuff's the favourite stuff. Yeah. Um, which of the... Which of the the kind of live stuff that you played, you know, would you class as your favourite, or is there something you still like playing now? Or? Well, yeah, I mean, stuff I'm still playing now. Really, when I go out on the road, I mean, Roll Over, Lay Down is one of my favourites. Forty Five Hundred Times a favourite of mine, although that's um, really kind of tightly attributed to Crow. Really, it's uh, a really personal one. Forty Five Hundred Times, but you know, as I said, Roll Over, Lay Down. Um, 4,500 times of that kind of stuff is still my, um, still what I play now. Some versions of like 4,500 times will go on for like 20 minutes. I mean, you must have had a lot of stamina to do that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's funny with the releases, the BBC releases recently, I just realised how long that number goes for and, um, uh, you know, how much memory is required for it. I mean, the, the arrangement was, you know, built over a number of years. It developed from, um, the song I wrote actually um, is it really me and we had a long arrangement in that 4,500 times crazy took over from that it developed over a number of years a set takes many years really it's a good set takes quite a few years to develop it's not something you can do overnight and you gradually build on it and build it and, and change the odd number here and there from tour to tour but it's um, a set is something that doesn't come easy it's not something you just write a few songs down so that's going to work it's something that works over a number of years or you develop over a number of years yeah yeah i mean i know that quo often gets state uh, slated even now because their set kind of stays the same do you think that perhaps when you were in the band that they that the set kind of changed a bit more or or well it would we changed it but um it, it was changed gradually from you know how you wouldn't put one or two or three changes in a set per tour but it did used to change gradually um, I don't know how much they're changing now, but um, I think they're probably playing more now than what we used to. I'm not sure. They still, I don't know if the touring schedule is as heavy as what we, we used to um, used to be with us and how often they change their set. But um, changing the set is quite a big thing, even one number. You like to, when you're on stage, you you'd like to be on, like on an automatic pilot. It takes quite a lot of energy. You know, it's, um, you get used to it, but it takes a lot of energy on stage, you, um, you know, physically and mentally, and you have to remember things. So you have to really, really be well rehearsed to, to settle down, to be relaxed and get on with the job, because uh, if you're not, you just break out in cold sweats and <laughs> hot and cold sweats. Yeah. And uh, we're stressed, but uh, we were never stressed out, of course. We, uh, 
obviously well rehearsed and take lots of chances on stage. Yeah, I, I think the the well rehearsed bit is not so much sitting in a room practicing or rehearsing it's more getting on the road and actually doing it that's where your main rehearsal comes and you're actually doing it for real the experience part of it and just a few um, warm up numbers beforehand keeps you going but um, you can't just for instance rehearse a set get on the road oh this is our set it, it takes takes time takes experience and the build ups so um, yeah people don't realise that actually <laughs> yeah Moving away from Crow, kind of very slightly, but kind of keeping on this touring subject, you you went on to be with, like as you say, the Party Boys and the the Bombers. And uh, I had a question recently from someone who wanted to know why the Bombers only toured Australia and Sweden and not the rest of Europe. Um, well, touring any band costs a lot of money. It costs money. Yeah, and to make money out of it, you have to be very, very careful. You can lose, lose, lose every time. It's like anything, playing in a band, dancing, sport. They are very expensive hobbies. And when you're doing something like a tour in a band, you can, you know, it's really, really costly. You're talking about flights, accommodation. So you really, you've got to, the only way you can offset that is by having people come to see you and actually pay to come to see you. If that doesn't happen, you you can only do it for so long before you go broke. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so um, what about like the Bobbers is a new band, and therefore it's a new brand. It's not like um, status quo, that's, uh, or you know, or any any other brand. It's there. People know about it, and there's um, a certain amount of, of customers, if you like, or people want to see it. So that means you can plan and do a tour where you can survive. But for most bands. They haven't got a brand name, or you know, they lose money, and that's the whole thing about touring. And as much as we love it, as much as we like playing, as much as people like playing their music, it does come down to money in the end. And that's the actual that's the actual uh, fact of making music too. It's like people say, "Why don't you release stuff?" Or well, releasing music, writing, and all that kind of stuff takes a lot of time and a lot of money. Yeah, making music cost money, a heap of money. It's very, very costly. And it's all right for people to say, why don't you do this or why don't you do that? It's the cost factor. Unless you've got all everything lined up at the same time, management, publicists, um, you know, booking agents, promoters, marketing, um, you've got your songs and your band together, your transport, everything, then you're going to lose a lot of money. So, um, it's the same with it with making records. If you, unless, unless you've got an outlet for it, then it's a waste of time and money. Yeah. And, uh, the only time it's worth doing that is in the early days when you're, you're young and you know, very young and you can have flop after flop for a while and still have people interested in you to carry on. But when you're, when you're um, starting a new brand off like the Bombers, it's, um, it's like starting from scratch. It's not like... Uh, so oh, we're going up with status quo with a new lineup. I mean, status quo is a brand. Everybody knows status quo. So what it does is a certain amount of people is going to be interested in what they do. This is the Quocast, and you're listening to a 2011 interview that I conducted with Alan Lancaster for a charity broadcast. And around this time, Francis Rossi had released his second solo studio album about a year before 
Uh, it was called One Step at a Time, and it led to a live album and tours and all the rest of it, live at St. Luke's. Definitely recommend that. There's lots of uh, rare Quo tracks performed, as well as tracks from that album. And Alan and I, in this next clip, uh, talk about the idea of Quo as solo artists. I was going to say Francis, I speak to Francis the other day, and you know, he's doing some solo stuff. I think I'm the only one, I've, actually I'm the only one in the band that's ever done that. I've had, I've had to do it for a number of years, you know, in the past, not so much there. People say, why well, I don't do it now? It's because it's a costly exercise. Well, Francis is doing one, although he's famous quote brand, just like I did, he can't, he wouldn't be able to um, sustain a solo or a band. Even when you're using your own name, it's, it's not a brand. So he wouldn't be doing sort of stuff either. It's the same, it's the same scenario. I mean, had you, had you ever considered kind of doing solo stuff on your own? No, 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 no. None of us are solo artists. There's a, a solo artist is a certain breed of person, and none of us in the band are that talented enough to be a solo artist. We haven't got the voices, we haven't got the um together we make um we'll, we'll top any solo artists because together we fit like a jigsaw puzzle and um all the parts fit and something good comes out of it. That's how you get a <laughs> you know, a recipe or a brand. As solo artists, none of us are solo artists. We've all got a certain bit of we all did have a certain little bit of, you know, um individuality um, but we're not solo artists we're parts we're parts of a recipe most solo artists they do the, the thing uh, there's no such thing really as a solo artist is there unless you're playing the guitar and singing all on your own that's all you've got or piano on your own you can't really sing and play the trumpet can you <laughs> so uh, a solo artist is someone who sings and accompanies themselves really but uh, most solo artists have got bands and orchestras behind them anyway so they're not really solo artists in that, in that respect so um, a yeah. solo artist you know um, really is somebody that conjures everything up himself but every solo artist has musical directors writers musicians everybody be, you know, doing the thing and they, uh, the people go to see only that solo artist like Shirley Bassey or yeah. Whoever they go to see that one thing, the members of Status Quo never had that quality, never had that type of talent. We're all talented to a certain level, but we weren't talented as a solo artist. But most front people in bands that go on to be solo artists don't really make it. I mean, your uh, your son David, he's in a in a band, isn't he? It's the Presence, is that right? Yeah, excellent band. One of the best rock live rock bands I've seen for a while I have to be quite honest and he's uh, doing really well he's got a good voice too and write great songs but I said to him it means nothing writing great songs recording great songs even having a great band that means absolutely nothing it's, it's a different it's making it in the music industry requires a different set of factors from that it requires those factors too but it requires a lot of extra it's a uh, you know, the most important thing is playing live. Yeah, yeah, and and obviously playing live is uh, an important thing. I mean, have you ever thought about kind of, you know, joining him on stage or, or, or playing with him on stage? No, no, because it's a different type of band. It's a serious band. And they go, you know, they're very, very good. They actually tear, they tear a place up. They play with the radiators, of course, quite 
um, a famous band over here the other night and had a fantastic gig. But it's not the type of band where you jump up on the stage and um, jam with, so to speak. <laughs> no. <laughs> the least of all me, really. I mean, w- would you say that, you know, like the music you've done in, in Quo or perhaps the Bombers, is, would you call it kind of serious music or, or was it kind of... It's, um, it's very... Uh, the actual style, well, it's not as close style, you know, this boogie beat. It's very, it's very progressive rock, good songs, but um, it's got this kind of seventies nostalgic feel to it. So they're very good songs. Very, uh, it's, it's hard rock, but they're good songs. They've got these nice bits to them, There's a slightly subtle calling to them, which uh, I really like the stuff. Yeah. And I, I would be proud if ever if I was in quo, if it was quo was my quo was still going, I'd have been proud to have those the material for my own band, you know, for, for quo. Yeah. So it was. Uh, what I'm trying to say is, is, is the music that they're writing and performing, Dave's band, the Depressants. All oh, right. Okay. Is is hard rock music, but it's got a very. Um, they've got very good. Cording. They're very good songs. Not just straight, straight. Not just straight, full on rock with no kind of way to go. Just you know, it's um, they're, they're quite well composed. The songs. Yeah. Listening to some earlier in preparation for this, I could hear some of that influence. I mean, do you think some of your music has perhaps had a, an influence on stuff that he writes? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, <laughs> without a doubt. I mean, in fact, strangely enough. He said one of his biggest influences is the Bombers album that I made, the Aim High album. Oh, yes, yeah, very good album. But, um, in fact, the, the band, the drummer, listens to that, so they listen to that quite a lot, even after all these years. I mean, must be 20 or so years old. But they say that's one of their biggest influences, strangely enough. Just myself listening to that album, I, I can see some of your influences. I mean, what what are some of your influences with um, with that album? My, my thing. My, with my thing? Yeah. I mean, my influence is Bob Dylan and people like that. And Jerry Lee Lewis, Bob Dylan, and, uh, you know, as far as lyrics and meanings of songs goes, you've got Dylan, and as far as the hard rock goes, you've got Jerry Lee Lewis. And uh, that's really where my influences come from, Chuck Berry, people like that. And I suppose when you listen to the close stuff, there is a lot of that in there, you know. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of Chuck Berry, you know, the, the, the storytelling, and you've got the Jerry Lewis, the harder rock, and you've got a bit of good in there with um, a bit of kind of, you know, a bit of nicety. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, looking back, those influences did come out in a strange way but we are, I mean I like pop music as much as anybody else as well but um, the only thing that I could play properly well is hard rock that was our thing and I've uh, also read recently that uh, that you've started writing a book is this correct? yeah we've read, I started writing a book a couple of years back and um, then I realised again it's like making records like touring it requires a lot of money to write a book unless you want to just waste your time and leave it on the shelf and um, I started writing the book there's there was people very interested, you know, I've got publishers interested, of course, and I realised that to write it properly, I'd need a proper side ghostwriter, or not even a ghostwriter, somebody actually writes it for me, well, I'm supplying all the information in my style. Yeah. I don't want to write it well, I don't want to just a, a fee just throwing it, you know, in, in the trunk, in the trash after a while. I just wanted something for a library, something that people can reference. And, you know, for their own thing. So I want to do a, a good one. I don't want to do a trashy one. 
So I've uh, engaged Anthony O'Grady, who's a top writer over here, to help me with it. And he's been doing transcripts and interviews or all that kind of thing to get it right for me. Yeah. But since the reconciliation with Quo, the, the whole, um, what's the word, the whole style of it, not so much a style, the, the tenor of it has changed. There's been a, a you know, obviously the ending is a, is a, is a, big, uh, it's a big change in the ending. So um, a couple of things have been put on hold with it, but um, we haven't finished it yet in, in a nutshell. And um, because we haven't finished, the reason we haven't finished it is because we had editorials lined up, etc., etc., which helped finance the writers to do it, to get it out, etc. But um, we haven't done that for for some reasons, for you know, personal reasons. And um, we haven't forgotten about the book. That's on the way, but it's how to do it, not you know, we can do it, you can write it easy enough, but it's how we go about publishing it because uh, we don't, none of us uh, are keen to waste their time. We'd like to, it's not, you know, writing is not a waste of time, but releasing it is a big effort. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm sure it'd be, you know, a very popular read amongst Quo fans once it comes out. Well, it's quite amazing, really, over the years, how the history, how people think about Quo, what what the breakup was about. There's so many different stories upon the stories, and there's actually, I can't blame fans or our supporters for thinking that way or believing that way, because actually some of the wrong things are actually published in interviews and biographies. There's a lot of things that's been printed that's totally inaccurate and absolutely wrong. Even their early biographies. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm guilty as anybody for that because we were flipping in the early days. used to say things and that weren't accurate. And years and years later, those things, those inaccuracies have been built upon to make more inaccuracies. So it'd be good to get something out to put everything right. I mean, Francis and I often talk about the old days and there's so many things that, um, that come up, you know, memories. <laughs> yeah, so many things that kind of come back to you. Well, yeah, they're always there. They're not really coming back, but we remember, we remember everything like, like it was yesterday. Yeah. Talk, you know, things like he says, things that I think about over the years, many, many years. When we got on the phone, I said, you still remember that, which is like when we're 13, 12, 13 years old. Yeah. You know, it might have been when we're 11 years old. No, it must have been when we were 12 years old. We remember things, what we were doing, 12 years old, things that our parents said to us, you know, when we were, when we were together, things that embarrassed us, and little things that stayed on our minds for all these years have stayed on both our minds. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Quocast, and you're listening to a 2011 interview that I conducted with Alan Lancaster for a charity broadcast. And in this next segment, we talk about Quo's then-current album, Quid Pro Quo, which got to number 10 in the UK albums chart. Have you heard any of kind of Quo's recent output? Has Francis kind of played Yeah, uh, they sent me the album, new album. You know, I've listened to that. And uh, I've, I've not listened to much stuff of their past stuff, you know. But this one I've listened to. I've sat down and listened to. Yeah. It's a completely different style. Quo's, mu- Quo's recording music today is a completely different sound and a completely different style to what it was when it was my band, which is obvious. I mean, you've got three major players, three different players in there that are a major part of the band, so it's obviously going to sound different no matter what you do. It's like having um, 
two guitars and a bass and drums and changing it to, you know, two trumpets, yeah. you know, um, euphonium and percussion. You're going to get, you get the same people, the same same band, but if you've got different instruments, it's going to sound different, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Like, same with people. People play instruments differently, no matter who it is. And, um, you know, yeah. even when I remember when the best substitute for any band member in choir was Pete Kircher. Yeah. Well, Pete Kircher was, you know, he took over John, John's parts, but he actually didn't just do Pete Kircher. He, he did John Coughlin. He, he didn't replace John Cochran, he substituted him. He actually copied things so well that I thought he played some of them better. <laughs> <laughs> but he actually, was, he actually copied him. So um, that was why it worked so well with Pete Kircher. But he was only there for a short period of time, of course. Got a great drummer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do, do you still keep in touch with kind of um, John or Pete or, or anyone? I do with John a lot. I don't keep, I haven't spoken to Pete ever since. Live Aid. But John, I keep in touch, in touch with regularly, as I do Francis and now and Rick, etc. Not Rick so much, he's a bit elusive, but um, we still keep in touch. Well, no, that's, that's, that's good because obviously you had several years where you didn't speak to them and now you're, um, you know, you're kind of. Yeah, it, it's politics though. You can't, you see, people just don't, don't get this. A band member, a musician, is a self proprietor, he's a business. Yeah, you know, he's not just—it's not just Francis Rossi or Alan Lancaster. Both those people are self, you know, are, are businesses. They're sole proprietary businesses. And when something goes, and because we're musicians, we're not business people. We have to have other people running it for us. And most self-proprietary businesses, like musicians, have to join up with other musicians in partnerships to make things work. You yeah. don't usually do it totally on your own. You're always in partnership with somebody. And when something goes wrong, it's usually the administrators that have to deal with it. We as musicians wouldn't have a clue. We wouldn't know. If somebody came, if Francis or Rick came to me or John or anyone said, oh, well, this is wrong, you've got to give us this, you've got to give us that, I wouldn't have a clue. I'd say, oh, very well, I'll give it to my manager now, I'll give it to so-and-so, I'll give it to my lawyer, I'll give it to so-and-so, let them sort it out. Because yeah. I wouldn't know. It's happened to me before in quote with Roy Lyons. Roy Lyons had to sue us all. I didn't even know he sued us until a couple of years ago. This was in the 70s. He sued, in the 70s, he sued us. It took him 10 years for him to get paid his royalties when he was due. Yeah. I didn't even know about it. So it's, it's a strange situation, you know, like, although it's Alan Lancaster that will probably owe Roy Lyons money, I wouldn't know what to do, how to go about it, where it's come from, what it's for. And um, it's the same with Francis and Rick. We wouldn't know. And John. We wouldn't know. So when anything goes wrong, we're the ones that are accountable and responsible. And we're the ones that didn't do it wrong. Well, we did no wrong, but we're the ones that are accountable. It's the same all the way down the line with musicians. We all, the buck stops with the musician, but there, is, uh, there were others, managers, lawyers, all those kind of things, are, are sorting it out or making it worse. Or rubbing their hands together, thinking, okay, we could make a lot of money out of fees from this by keeping these guys, you know, in combat, so to speak. So it's not a matter of not speaking with one another because we can't speak to, uh, because we don't want to. It's because basically we can't. Yeah. It's we don't run our own business. We we're the product. We create things. So when Alan Lancaster does something wrong, it's either Alan Lancaster the man or Alan Lancaster the proprietor. Same with Rossi and Parfit and Cochran, they're proprietors as well as human beings and other people look after the business, not us. 
the manager may know nothing about the situation like they manage it now. Obviously, don't know anything about the things when I were in the band because they weren't there. Yeah. And so they have to get others to, to help them. So it's a, it's a very, very long, you know, tedious process when things go wrong. And, of course, a lot has gone, a lot of, of business things went wrong with status quo because of the early days, the way it was set up. I mean, it's all, they were all verbal contracts in the early days, or a lot of things were. And um, we're all individually contracted, so, um, you know, and it was all very loose. Yeah, and now things are tight well, yeah so they can keep that brand in check but yeah i'm afraid uh, we've actually run out of time but uh, thank you very much for talking to us and um pleasure jamie it's much much appreciated and of course you know before this conversation you and i have never spoken before so it's um well, you've got a good radio voice by the sounds of it oh, thank you thank you <laughs> I, I try i try that's me jamie dyer talking to alan lancaster in 2011 for a charity broadcast. And it's amazing to me listening uh, all this time later. Obviously, I, I'm nervous, but uh, it's important to know that at the time I was doing it for an audience that perhaps weren't as familiar with Quo, even though some of the questions that I asked there were taken from the old Quo message board because uh, I put up a thing asking people uh, to submit them. Uh, but I can't believe all this time later look i'm doing a status quo fan podcast and if you are listening alan or if anybody connected to alan is listening i would love to do a follow-up interview uh, 10 years later that would be uh, amazing um no pressure but uh, you know that would be an amazing thing to try and organize what did you make of uh, what alan said there back in 2011 before all of the um, the document, well, the documentary, the uh, reunion tours, all the extra bits and pieces that went with that. What did you make of that then? I thought then, wow, this is amazing. I had no idea what was around the corner. And if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode of the Quocast, then you can just email quocast at outlook.com that's quocast at outlook.com you can tweet at the quocast on twitter or you can go to the facebook page which is just simply facebook.com forward slash the quocast (laughs) 